Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the National Library of Australia. And I'll just ask those last few people to, um, to take their seats. Thank you very much. Um, welcome to the library. I'm Murray-Louise Ayres, and it's my privilege and honour to be the Director-General of the National Library of Australia. Uh, as we begin this evening, I acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, and thank for them for their care and custodianship of the land that we are now so privileged uh, to do our national work from, and many of us, of course, live on this land. I'm really delighted that so many of you have joined us today to listen to Dr Anne Summers about her new memoir, Unfettered and Alive. Anne is a best-selling author, journalist and thought leader who has been prominent in Australian media, politics and feminist activism for the last four decades. She's advised governments, prime ministers, been an award-winning journalist, edited magazines in both Australia and New York, chaired the international environmental organisation Greenpeace and even had her image on a postage stamp. She's the author of eight books, including The Classic Damned Whores and God's Police, first published in 1975, and I've got a feeling she hasn't even gotten started yet. <laughs> I'm also really delighted to say that um, Anne is well represented in the library's collection, of course through her publications, but also through her personal archive, which is um, comprised of both physical papers and a very large digital archive. We also recorded her 2017 Kenneth Meyer lecture, which was delivered here and in Melbourne, entitled 2020 Vision, Where is Australia Headed? Joining Anne this evening is well-known and loved print and radio journalist Genevieve Jacobs. A former presenter with the morning program on ABC Radio Canberra, Genevieve has assisted us in facilitating many conversations here at the library. She's recently been appointed group editor for Region Media, which is headlined by the long-standing Canberra news site, the must-read, The Riot Act. So please join me in welcoming Dr Anne Summers and Genevieve Jacobs. Well, ladies and gentlemen, good evening to you. What a wonderfully warm welcome. <laughs> Look at you all. We're packed to the gills. It's fabulous. Great. <laughs> and uh, I think the size of the crowd is, is probably testament to just how much esteem our guest tonight is held in by so many of us. She's had several stints here in Canberra, of course, and I know that there are old friends and old <laughs> colleagues among the audience. Um, but uh, Anne Summers looked at the same prospects as, I think, a lot of us when she was a convent girl in Adelaide <laughs> and thought, nah, there's more to it than that. <laughs> and as Mary, Louise, yes, as Mary Louise said a moment ago, yeah, there certainly was a, an extraordinary career uh, documented in this memoir, Unfettered and Alive. I'm going to start the conversation with Anne and I'll give you about 15 minutes or so at the end. I do always say to my Canberra audiences, I know you'll have wonderful questions. <laughs> so thinking caps on, uh, but please, when we get to that stage, uh, just do wait until we get a microphone to you so everyone can hear the questions and uh, we can all participate in the conversation. And a, a very warm welcome indeed. Thank you very much, Genevieve. It's great to be here. And um, if you look back at... And to meet you for oh, the first you. time. Thank you very much. <laughs> and to meet you. I'm sorry, we've had the selfie out the back. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if you, if you look back at what was in many ways a, a conventional middle-class Catholic upbringing from the outside at least, one that 
many people in this room would probably identify with the elements thereof. Where do you think the, the fire came from, the, the conviction that the established limits were way too close for comfort as far as your life was concerned? It's very hard to know exactly where they came from, but I can tell you they manifested themselves very early on. Uh, when I, um, as I say in the, in the beginning of this book, I, I started with a, a letter to myself, uh, written to my 30-year-old self, because the book starts with me, age 30, uh, going, I've just published my first book, Damned Halls and God's Police, and I've just got a job, my first job as a real journalist with the National Times. This is December 1975, and I think I've achieved my life's two ambitions. And I sort of thought basically life was over. And instead, of course, it was just really beginning. <laughs> um, but to get to the point uh, from where I'd, I'd been as this sort of un lacking in confidence, many ways self-loathing, um, Catholic uh, schoolgirl, one of six children, the only girl, um, pretty unhappy home life, very difficult relationship with my father, not enjoying school. I left school the second I was legally able. So how I got from being that girl to the person at 30 who'd achieved her life's ambitions is something that I like, kind of tried to grapple with in this letter to myself, to my 30-year-old self. And, and one of the things that I realised is that when I was growing up um, in Adelaide and I... Back then, I mean, some of you who, who will remember those days, is the only women that I ever saw were those women in my own family or the nuns at school or perhaps the lady that, you know, worked in the local shop. But there were no women around. You know, there was no, no women members of parliament. There was, if you, if you had television, we didn't at that point. But when, when you did have television, the only women you saw on television, apart maybe from, you know, Dame Margot Fontaine flittering across a stage would be, um, you know, the girls in bikinis reading the weather at the end of the news. Uh, there were no women in public, you know, with, with voices of authority. You know, women weren't allowed to read the news because their voices weren't deemed to be high enough and therefore no one would believe what they said. Um, so the only women that I really could look to for what I might do with my life were my mother and her sisters. And my mother was, you know, what we used to be called a housewife with six children. And she had one sister who was a nun and another sister who was on the shelf, <laughs> as it used to be called back then. If you were an unmarried lady of about 30, she was a spinster. And to me, she was the most interesting one of the three because she was independent. She had a job. I mean, she was a lowly bank teller. Well, not a teller. Because girls weren't allowed to be tellers, but no, she worked in a bank in, in Finlay in the Riverina, but she had her own money and she was independent. And she took me to dinner one night at, to Florentino's restaurant in Melbourne. And this was the most sophisticated thing that had ever happened to me in my life. And I thought, well, if being on the shelf and having money looks it's looking like a pretty good option. So <laughs> I think that's how I got started. <laughs> and I, I really wondered about the roots of the feminism because certainly your first career was in journalism and that's threaded its way throughout your life. But like a lot of young women in that era who, who pushed the boundaries a bit and came into contact with this bohemian, intellectual, radical world, it was all, it's still a very sexist world in many ways, wasn't it? The parameters of that world were very male. It, yes, but I mean, in, in, in many respects, I didn't feel that way um, when I was in it because in, in the early, even though I was very involved in what we used to call women's liberation, we didn't really say the word feminism much back then, 
um, I've certainly was had the all had the ideas, but because I was involved in you, know, you were talking about the Sydney Push. I mean, it was a fringe group. It was a sort of sexually um, adventurous group, if you like, and certainly it was very male dominated. But I don't think that we women felt as oppressed as as our suburban sisters, you know, who were sort of you know tied to the apron strings with 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 kids to worry about. So we felt that we were freer. I guess later we realised that we probably weren't, but just it was a different kind of oppression. Mm. Um, but I guess my, my ideas about feminism, also before I started off as a journalist at the age of 30, I had, had, had a number of jobs um, when I was a teenager, first of all in a bank and then you know, working in various shops and things like that. So I'd experienced a lot of typical female employment and realised how, uh, well, first of all, how badly paid it was, and secondly, how um, kind of dead end most of it was and how you weren't expected to go anywhere because you were just basically waiting to some guy to come along and choose you and so you could get married. And then your life would basically be not, not yours to control anymore. I mean, that was it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and the introduction... Which didn't really appeal to me. No, for <laughs> obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Having a brain and all. Um, as you say, the introduction is a letter to yourself, and you write in that that becoming a woman became intrinsic to your story. I just wondered if you could explain that as, as your career took shape, as a journalist but also beyond, what this, this notion of a woman's self being intrinsic to who you were. I guess in 1975, sorry, 1965, I read um, Simone de Beauvoir's book, The Second Sex, and the opening line of that book uh, had a very profound uh, effect on me. And, and, and she writes, um, one is not born, rather one becomes a woman. And, and the argument she was making is that, that, and she said that a woman is something between, that resides between the male and the eunuch, you know, who basically has no um, intrinsic value or intrinsic definition even because she is just a socially constructed creature and a very, um, uh, a very inferior creature in the, in the society in which she was writing about. And this was a very radical notion to me, and that is that you know, the women I saw around me, um, that, that that wasn't the only thing one could do. That one that, that a woman was actually a socially constructed being, and therefore you didn't have to be the women I could see around you. You could be you could be other constructs. And what I learned from reading books is that you could be a writer, or you could be a, you know, a political activist. You could be all sorts of things. And and this was very very exciting to me. But uh, what, when I decided to write this book and to tell my story, I mean, I realised it was a story of how I became the person I am today having started off as that very uncertain, self-loathing girl. And it's a long journey, it's over many, many decades, I don't need to say exactly how many, but <laughs> it's long. Um, and and one of the things that I learnt, and it, it's sort of a bit like what Julia Gillard said on the final night, you know, when she was booted out of the Prime Ministership, and she said, you know, gender doesn't determine everything. I mean, sometimes it's really important, sometimes it matters a lot, sometimes it doesn't matter at all, but as a woman you can't really escape your gender and most of the time you don't want to, but um, figuring out how it, how it is a factor in what you do with your life has been a lifelong preoccupation for me as a feminist and also as a woman because sometimes it's mattered a lot, sometimes it hasn't mattered at all in, in certain jobs or in certain situations that I've been in, but I have been fortunate enough to have my adult life 
um, at the, uh, been at the cusp of the changes that have been available for women of my generation that weren't available, say, to my mother or to, to, to my grandmother, because we um, are born at the end of the war, the baby boomer generation, you know, we had access to education and to, to a wider range of employment, or to employment at all in many cases, than had been available before. And of course, you know, we all know the women's movement came along in the late 60s and, and we were able to start examining what it was that a woman was meant to be and then could be. And we realised that we could take charge of our lives mm. and we could create our own future. And, and there are some interesting choices there. Um, when you came here first to the press gallery for the Fin Review, I mean, this was still the kind of place where cabinet ministers would sometimes chase young women journalists around their offices, quite oh, yeah. literally. Still <laughs> happening in New South Wales. Apparently <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for some women, though, the, the way around that was in the past to essentially turn themselves into one of the blokes, just in order to, to get the job done. Were you tempted at any point, as a journalist or, or later in your political career, by that kind of accommodation so that you could, you could simply just get the work done? I don't think I really saw it that way. I mean, I, I you know, do recount a couple of, of stories where, uh, I mean, I didn't think most of the time that my, my being a woman was at disadvantage. I mean, the fact that I worked for the Financial Review and, and it, you know, it was an important paper and anyone who wanted to reach that audience had to deal with me because I was the, the bureau chief, the political correspondent, that kind of outweighed a lot of things. But there were times when, for example, a cabinet minister said, well, you know, if you want to come over on Sunday night, we can have a bit of a chat about a few portfolio issues. I thought, fine. And when I got there, the lights were low, the wine was open, and <laughs> he wasn't quite wearing a smoking jacket, but he might as well have been. <laughs> and I thought, I bet this doesn't happen to Laurie Oaks. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a time when, you know, Ma uh, Malcolm Fraser was invited up to Queensland one St. Patrick's Day by the Queensland Irish Association, had their legendary... St. Patrick's Day lunch, and the only problem was that it's held in their club, which then, and this is, I think this is about 1981, um, did not admit women. So Michelle Grattan and I couldn't go. And so we said to Malcolm Fraser, well, look, you know, if you do this, we can't do our jobs. It's not fair, you shouldn't do it. Well, he, he was really impressed by that argument. <laughs> uh, so he went in and did, did the lunch and all the blokes from the gallery went and, and reported. I met Michelle and I stood out in the street and gave radio interviews you know, to, <laughs> to whoever wanted to talk to us. But, so there were, those sorts of things happened. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I would ask you to just... I mean, it's, it's not about a recitation of anecdotes, but there's a, there is a marvellous story of you ending up sitting on Alan Jones's knee in the <laughs> Prime Ministerial plane... I didn't have to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yes. Um, there was a night when... Um, I, I do write about the fact that occasionally you saw the, the lighter side of Malcolm Fraser. It was pretty rare, but, but there was um, one night when... when um, the, a few, there were only a few journalists travelling with him this night and, uh, and, and his advisers, some of his advisers, and one of whom was Alan Jones, who was his speechwriter... Some of you probably remember back then when he was mm. speechwriter, mm. before he went on to other things. <laughs> and Malcolm was very, very late getting back to the plane and we were all sitting on the tarmac somewhere on the Gold Coast waiting for him to come and, and knowing if he didn't hurry up and get there, we were going to miss the curfew in Melbourne and it was going to be difficult. And We were um, killing a few bottles of Grange while we waited. That's the way they used to shut us up on the, on the VIP. And it turned out that Malcolm was having a drink with 
Sir Jack Edgerton and trying to do a deal with him about Eric Robinson. So Eric Robinson had just died and they were trying to do a deal about the siege and they drank a, killed a bottle of scotch together. So when Malcolm arrived, he was very, very happy and relaxed. And uh, uh, as soon as we were wheels up, he got out his camera and started <laughs> taking photographs of everybody. And he said to me, Anne, why don't you sit on Alan's knee? <laughs> The, the photo still exists, but it's not in the book. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, America has been a, an important recurring part of yes. your life and, and also in the story of your career. Uh, when you visited there a number of times over the years and been very enmeshed in some of the, the, the crucibles of second wave feminism along the way. Tell me how America has, has shaped you as a, a writer, a publisher, a thinker and an activist. I guess you know, I first went to America in 1976 and I was the first person I knew to ever go there because um, you know, we all hated America, of course, because of the Vietnam War, uh, even though many of the writers that we most admired were American and, of course, we loved the music. And um, I, I, I went, I decided to go in, in 76 for various reasons. And ever since then, I've had, as I said, I was the first person I know to go. Most people I knew went to England. I was never interested in going to England. The... I think I've been, had this extraordinary fascination with the country ever since because it is uh, a very perplexing, very exciting, very hideous, you know, it's everything you can think about a country America has um, in, 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 to a huge degree. But the first time I went there in 1976 and it was to New York and it was before New York was the Big Apple, it was a very scary place in the 70s, terrible crime. Um, but it was still had an exciting edge to it. And, I, you know, Patti Smith was singing at a garage down the street and, you know, hit poets and artists and people I knew kind of live in this downtown grungy sort of existence. And I was tempted to stay, but in the end I decided to come back to the, the security of, of the press gallery. Uh, but I kept going back and back and back and I'm now back there again, I think, for my, on my fifth time. So there's something about the place that, that keeps me um, enchanted. And I guess I, I like the energy and the excitement, and I think you know there are some wonderful writers, there's some wonderful thinkers, uh, even in this terrible political time that we're going through in America at the moment. Though yesterday I think you know presented some uh, some good uh, checks to, to Trump. Um, even when the when the bad things are, are dominant, there is just this tremendous um, imagination and creativity, which I find very admirable. It's also the scene for one of the really toughest parts of this book, which is about the travails of taking over Ms. Magazine from mm. Gloria Steinem, one of those icons of second wave feminism. Such a huge opportunity, you thought, mm. and gosh, it turned out very differently in many ways. And part of that was that you confronted the, the hard business of running a magazine for whose financing you were responsible and really perhaps questioned in many ways your own beliefs about what women wanted to read, what they wanted to hear, what responsibilities you had towards that market and what the commercial realities were. Mm. Well, I guess, I mean, taking over an, an iconic um, American feminist magazine such as Ms, and I'm sure everybody here knows of Ms magazine, it was formed, founded in 1972 by Gloria Steinem as a feminist it was meant to be a commercially uh, a commercial uh, magazine, but like the unlike the other mainstream women's magazines, which you know, Gloria used to argue made women feel bad about themselves or insecure about themselves, um, Ms was going to celebrate women and give women things to be proud of and to, to show you know what was happening with the new women the new women as we were becoming under 
uh, feminism. Um, but by the time I took it over, Ms was 15 years old and the shine had gone off it. Um, circulation was down, uh, advertising was definitely down. It was in tremendous debt, which is why it was for sale. We, when Fairfax bought it, it you know, we, had to, we basically paid a very low purchase price, but we just took over all their debts. And one of the things that, that I discovered, um, we just, my business partner Sandra Yates and I discovered to our consternation is that the, when we did some research into to Mrs. actual and potential readership is that women, um, by and large, um, didn't like Ms. anymore because it made them feel guilty. Yeah. So the whole reason for starting a magazine to make women feel better about themselves in contrast to the mainstream women's magazines had kind of um, reached this point where um, Ms. was a bit of a downer. And women, it, was, it was the 80s, it was the middle to late 80s. It was a time when women were in the workforce in large numbers. There was this pressure to have it all, was the phrase then, having it all. And women that we, we talked to felt under this tremendous pressure. They wanted to be in the workforce, but they hated the fact that they had to do their jobs and go home and do another job and got no help from, from the, the, the partner. Um, and they didn't want to read a magazine that made them feel guilty for feeling upset about this. And so this was a, a very large issue and, and how to tackle that editorially um, and, and not get run into trouble with the, the sort of very strict feminist view that I'd inherited in the magazine turned out to be an irreconcilable irre conflict. And at the same time, we found that getting advertising for Ms. was almost impossible uh, because of the reputation of the magazine. But one of the things that we uh, were determined to, to keep alive was, was the spirit of the magazine that Gloria had founded. And we certainly weren't going to accept beauty advertising or um, you know, cosmetic advertising or food advertising, all the main staple uh, advertising in women's magazines and which kept them going. As you know, it used to be the case in America that you paid virtually nothing to subscribe to a magazine. It might pay $12 a year for 12 copies. Um, and the reason for that was because advertising paid for the production of the magazine. And this gave advertisers tremendous power. Mm -hmm. And um, most of the women's magazines, uh, their staple of ads was uh, food, um, fashion and beauty, cosmetics. And the advertisers of those products all demanded um, complimentary edit. And we weren't prepared to write, run articles on makeup, or we weren't prepared to run recipes, and we weren't, weren't prepared to run fashion. Therefore, none of that advertising was available to us. So you know, we ended up with cigarettes, which, of course, everybody hated, um, and, and, and various other categories that were <laughs> um, that nevertheless still. I and mean, we got a lot of car advertising, which was fantastic, Detroit. But but they still, they didn't demand, we write about cars, but they did demand that, the, that when the reader turned the page to see their ad, that they'd be feeling happy. <laughs> and therefore, I mean, there was I had this terrible story, which I tell in great detail in the book about running a, a, you know, a big article about a very, very famous and very sad case about a, 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 a woman involved in a very... Uh, famous domestic violence and murder case in New York, and I ran a big series, a big package of articles about her, and the you know the advertisers objected because they didn't want their readers to feel depressed about this, the violence that this woman had endured when they looked at the ad for Chevrolet, mm. so they wouldn't pay for the ad. 
Mm, mm. So look, I, I, these sorts of things um, were, were very, very difficult and in the end almost impossible to manage. But then on top of that, we had some, you know, business... I mean, it's such a long and complicated story, we probably shouldn't spend too much time on it. But we, we were basically brought to our knees, having... having Sandra and I, having done this, you know, amazing thing of raising $20 million on Wall Street, when that was a lot of money, um, to, buy the, to buy the two magazines after Fairfax wanted to sell them, only to be brought to our knees by a, a boycott uh, of our other magazine, Sassy, Teenage Girls magazine, by the religious right, you know, the moral majority and some of these other groups who objected to what we were running in SASE about teenage pregnancy and so on. Mm. And it's, it's, it's bruising and hard to read about, not least because America seems to be a place where battles over ideological purity uh, are such a sort of an endlessly fertile ground. Horrible. But, uh, Horrible. But, but just moving on from that, I, uh, but perhaps connected, I want to also talk about the way in which you discuss your terminations. Mm. Because here and now in 2018, it, it's still slightly unusual, I think, to have quite a, a frank description of what a woman weighs up when she's making the decision to have mm. an abortion. You do that several times th mm. here. Twice. Tell me, tell me why. Well, it seemed to me that if I'm going to tell the story of my life over the past 40 years and, and try to um, um, have that story be you know, both honest and, and, um, and um, true, but also relevant, that, you know, I'm trying to tell this, I'm not trying to gloss over what happened. I mean, I don't gloss over these really terrible experiences at Mears and later on at Good Weekend when I had a, a really, really terrible time. Um, it also seems to me that, you know, that, that being a woman matters sometimes, and matters a lot other times, and most of us find ourselves pregnant when we don't want to be at some stage in our lives, and it happened to me unwittingly and, and, un, un, and unwantedly, and uh, I had to make decisions about it. So I decided to include... Um, those instances in the book and to talk about, I mean, all of the pressures that um, over the years, I think it's changed quite a bit, but, you know, there were certain periods in my life when during the 80s where there was this time when, you know, we were told that, um, you know, if we didn't hurry up, we'd miss out and we'd spend the rest of our lives regretting, you know, and our biological clocks were going tick, 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 and there are all these articles, all this, all this incredible pressure being put on single women to have babies. And I know a lot of my friends did, and I sort of, I said, I thought about it, of course I did, but then I decided, no, I wasn't going to do that. And so I, I spent quite a lot of time discussing those pressures. I mean, having already decided in my 20s, I didn't want children, but, you know, you can't make that decision and, and it, you know, lasts forever because it, it gets, either you find yourself pregnant and you have to, revisit the decision or you're subjected to all this extraordinary um, social pressure as occurred during the 80s for, for women. You know, I mean, the constant theme throughout the book and throughout my life, and it's something I've always been conscious of and written about a lot in various ways is, and it goes back to Dan Hawes and God's police, that I mean, here in Australia, we really deep down don't think a woman is a real woman if she doesn't have children. Mm. And that is still, and that was the, Good Weekend episode, this, this very, very strong, censorious view against a woman. I mean, she can be terrific, she can achieve all these things and all the rest of it, but deep down, she isn't quite the real thing if she doesn't have children. Mm -hmm. And so that is a constant pressure, and I felt that it would be completely um, disingenuous of me to write about my life and not talk about these things. 
and not give real examples about getting preg being pregnant, not wanting to be, and, and having an abortion, having a couple of abortions. Mm. And I mean, one of the things that, that I do talk about, and I mean, I had this huge shit fight with um, Malcolm Fraser in the press gallery. Uh, many, some of you might remember it when he wouldn't let me fly on his plane around the world because of a f fight we'd had. And uh, so my boss, Max Walsh, at the Financial Review said, OK, I'm not going to be dictated to by the Prime Minister. And he accused Malcolm Fraser of news management and sex discrimination, which is great, um, and said, no, Ann Summers is going to cover this trip anyway, because he was going to Washington. It was the Russians had just invaded Afghanistan and Malcolm was going off to save the world. Um, so he said, OK, you can, you can follow them commercially. So I, I went around the world commercially and, you know, every time they landed, I'd be there <laughs> <laughs> on the tarmac, which you could do then, <laughs> and really giving him the shits. Um, <laughs> but the trouble is, just when we decided to do this, I discovered I was pregnant. And uh, so I had to do this, you know, this, this gallivanting around the world, feeling very, very sick. And it, uh, it was something I thought, OK, this is something that only women have to, do, have to put up with. And I wanted to record that. Mm. And uh, when you as, you, as you say, this sort of damned whores or God's police sort of dichotomy is all about people making presumptions about mm. women, not actually examining in any kind of forensic detail what women think, what women want or women believe. And uh, when you went on to work um, in Canberra for the, the, the second sort of political stint for Paul Keating, one mm. of the significant things that you did was for the first time to decide to do deep, real, thorough mm. policy research on what causes did matter to women, what mm. might sway their vote. And it's extraordinary to read this and to think that, that no one had twigged that 50% of the population who have the vote might actually have some causes of their own. Well, I, mean, I, I know, because when I, you know, Keating got in touch with me, or either Don Watson in his office got in touch with me and said, you know, Paul's got a bit of a problem with women, and um, <laughs> by which he meant a political problem, um, of course, uh, that there was, you know, that Keating wasn't as, um, yeah, there was a big gender gap in, in support mm. for Keating and, and, and Keating had just become the leader. He'd taken the job from Bob Hawke and he had about a year to go to the election and they were wondering what they could do to, to try and remedy this. And so they had the bright idea of, I was in New York yet again, of asking me if I'd come back and, and help. And uh, eventually I, I, I did. Um, so when I arrived, I said, well, you know, they, they said, well, we know why everyone, we know why women hate Paul. This is what the PMO said. Okay, why, why do they hate Paul? Uh, they hate him because of his aggression in Question Time. I thought, well, actually, every woman I know thinks he's fantastic in Question Time. <laughs> they love the wit and they love the jokes and that, you know, a souffle doesn't rise twice mm. and a shiver looking for a spine to run up and I'm going to do you slowly, mate. You know, <laughs> most women I know love that. So I wasn't sure that was really the problem. So I said, what does the research say? What research? So. so. So then I was able to persuade them that we should do these, this focus group research Australia-wide, we're very, very comprehensive, asking uh, women, um, and then carefully chosen women all around, basically to talk about their lives, uh, what they thought about their lives as women, to ask them what they thought the most important issues facing the country were, and to ask them what the three most important issues affecting them that the government could maybe do something about were. And the results were just so uniform, regardless of where, which capital city, which regional centre, wherever we were, absolutely unanimous results. The three things that women nominated that they wanted government to do something about for them, childcare, 
women's health, domestic violence. Mm. This is 1992. Mm. Mm. And what really staggered me, I mean, I wasn't surprised about childcare. Women's health, we, we thought was a little bit, was, you know, because Houston was running around promising to get rid of Medicare, so it was a little bit of that. But we also figured, and we, this, the researcher we had is a very brilliant woman who I'd worked with a lot before and, and since, who is very good at kind of hearing what's not quite being said. And she, she interpreted that to mean that women's health was also a little bit about me and my value as a woman and me time and you know having a little bit of space to myself. So it, it was health, I mean definitely, and we did some good policies. We started breast screening uh, as a response to that and you know, it's grown to what it is today. We started cervical cancer screening as a result of that. So we did various things to respond. But the violence thing, I mean, obviously I knew about violence. I've been involved in starting Aussie Women's Refuge, you know, some years earlier. So we knew about domestic violence. But what really staggered me was how pervasive it was and how many women in the groups, it was clearly something that was affecting their lives. Mm. And it was, it was really shocking. It was really sad. But it was also a huge challenge because it, to the extent you could do anything about domestic violence back then, it was a state matter, you know. It was a, it was a, um, you know, police matter, or, you know, the refuges and everything were administered by the state. So trying to figure out what the Commonwealth could do um, was a huge challenge. And I think, you know, how was it like? Twenty odd years later, twenty five years mm. later, we're still trying to figure it out mm. and not not getting very far. Mm. And I think we've, you know, we're still having those discussions. Just yesterday on the radio, I listened to a discussion about this very thing that we're, we are making progress on the openness of the discussion, but mm. the attitudes. Mm. Um, you yourself... Or stopping it. Yes, stopping, stopping it. it. Stopping mm. it and yeah. going to the, the sort of the real roots of why it happens. Yeah. As you said a moment ago, you yourself went through a sort of horrible, ghastly accusation of sexual harassment um, during your time editing Good Weekend, which also demonstrated how deep the antipathy towards the agents of quite profound social change around gender could be. And mm. you characterise this as a war against women. Mm. And maybe what we saw happen to Julia Gillard even more recently is also a part, part of It's part of the same continuum, I think. And, and mm. that's really my question. Do you see our gender struggles as an ongoing war against women, as, as a, a specific targeting still here now, 2018? Mm. Just before I get to that, Jennifer, just to clarify, mm. I wasn't actually accused of sexual harassment. No, no. Um, what happened was that there was a rumour going around mm. that I was going to be. Yes, I'm sorry, I should that, make that and, clear. And yeah. that was um, mm. turned out to be wrong, and the person mm. who was... A, Mm. going to complain about me, didn't complain mm. and said... And had never intended to and was... And yeah. said there was nothing yeah. about which he could complain. So, yeah. but, it, but it was a very vicious rumour that, that took off in the media and eventually got into the press and, and you know, mm. terrible things that were said about me and believed by a lot of people for about three months. It was a very, very mm. horrible period in my life. Um, but then the way it, it, it developed in, in, in excruciating detail, which I won't go into mm. now, but... It's true. I mean, it made me realise that, that, yes, we're always going to be um, targeted um, if we got a little bit out of, you know, a little bit too um, uppity, I guess. Mm, heads above the parapet. And, mm. and I really didn't understand it because, I mean, I was just a magazine editor. I was, you know, only editing a little weekend, weekend you know, throwaway mm. magazine. I wasn't, 
I talk about Carmen Lawrence mm. and what happened to her and Joan Kerner and you know, Julie Gillard. I mean, these are women, Jenny George. Mm. These are all women, you know, in big public positions, ministers, premiers, you know, heads of the trade mm. union movement. And what was done to them was horrible, but perhaps more explicable. Why go after, you know, someone like me? So it, it, it just showed sort of really how pervasive this view is on the part of some people that women shouldn't be able to succeed mm. outside of the... You know the white picket fence, the little place that some people would have us inhabit. Mm -hmm. Do you connect that sense of an ongoing war against women from the the powers that be with the Me Too movement, the backlash that we're in the midst of now? And you and I had a phone conversation mm. a couple of days ago, and you mm. said in some ways you saw this great momentum um, from younger women realizing, well, holy cow, it's true after all. Yeah. It's it's yeah. really still happening. Oh, very much so. Um, I mean, I've, what, just the thing on Me Too, which I find very puzzling about uh, Australia and how it's manifested itself. I mean, it's, I don't know whether it's actually stalled here or whether it's... I don't know what's happening. I mean, the stuff today with Luke Foley, I guess, is another little twist and turn in, in the way in which it's manifested. But just so I could just digress for a second. I mean, I wrote an article... Um, about six weeks ago for the Australian Financial Review magazine about Me Too in America. And in that article, I listed the names of 120 men, and um, American men, and they were all really powerful, mostly very well-known men, and not just Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer and all those, but, you know, really incredible. Like the, the chief conductor of the Met, you know, the editor of the Paris Review, you know, the head of CBS, all these actors, all these politicians, all, 120 of them, um, in the course of the last year, since Me Too started in October um, 2017, have lost their jobs, been fired, forced to resign, lost everything as a result of Me Too accusations that have been investigated by their employers or their colleagues, found to be credible, and there have been these consequences and these men, these very powerful, influential men have lost their jobs. Mm. And I find it impossible to believe that Australia is so dissimilar uh, that we don't have that situation here. So why is it that the complaints here aren't even being aired, let alone for the most part, acted on? And I don't know the answer to that. I'm just ask, asking the question. And people say to me, oh, it's a defamation laws, and possibly, and we do have a defamation case in court in Sydney at the moment that I'm not going to say a single word about. Um, but it is just very, very puzzling to me that we are not willing to have the conversation as openly mm. as they are having it in the States. Mm, mm. And perhaps we, we lose the energy and the dynamism that we see in the States, that sort of raw commitment mm. that people come forward with, with fire in their bellies. Um, I, I'm going to turn over fairly shortly to you in the audience, so thinking caps on and hands up in a minute. Um, but before I do, Anne, you say towards the end of the book that you've often, and I, I like this phrase, you've often shed your skin. <laughs> you've changed jobs, lives, continents. You once asked Betty Friedan how she would describe herself, and, and at that stage she was an older woman and she'd been through some very tough battles. Mm. So I want to ask you the same thing. How do you now describe mm. Anne Summers? Mm. Well, what surprised me about Betty Friedan is when she was in Sydney and had dinner with her and I said, how would you mm. describe yourself? And she said, firstly, I'm an American, secondly, I'm a Jew, thirdly, I'm a woman. Mm. And I, 
I don't know why I was surprised, but for some reason I thought she'd say woman first. And I guess I was also, also surprised that she's got three kids and she didn't say she was a mother. Mm. And um, given, you know, so um, that surprised me. But when I, when I, if, if you asked me that question as you just did, <coughs> it wouldn't occur to me say it, for me to say I'm an Australian. No. Um, no. Not that I you know, mm. disavow it, but, but it's not the way I define myself. So, I mean, I would call myself a... Uh, a woman of eternal curiosity who's, um, you know, still looking for the next adventure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, look, just just one final question. Mm. One of the threads through the book is, and you mention it yourself, your difficult relationship with your father in particular, mm. also with your mother to some degree. I had a sense reading this that these were perhaps not words you would have written 20 years ago, that there has been, as you've shed your skin, as you've changed and evolved, that there's mm. been a different understanding of those people and how they had shaped your life, what they had meant, how you yourself had come to terms with that relationship. So I just wanted to ask mm. you to comment on that. Well, I, I have actually written about my family in other... You know, mm, I've yes. written a lot about my mother in a book called yes. The Lost Mother. Yes. Um, so I don't, she doesn't feature mm. as much in this book as uh, because of that. And I have written about my father previously, but what I talk about, particularly in this book, is my ultimate reconciliation with him, mm. um, which was almost literally on his deathbed. And it was, and I talk quite a lot about about his, the, the his decline, I guess. I mean, he was a very frightening, um, foreboding figure mm. to me when I was young, and I really you know, did not like him. I hated him, and couldn't wait to get away from him. But as he got older and he got sick, um, and I started to feel sorry for him, and we realised that we, and you know, the various family things that happened, that we realised we had to try to reconcile before he died, uh, but it was still a very hard thing to do. You mm. know, and it's not, not, just, it's not just a matter of forgiving somebody, though I found that very hard to do, but um, I guess we don't really have the, the language and the paths and the ability to, and we had to find it and, and it was, it was yeah. very, very tough. Yeah. The other thing that, that I write about in this book, which I think is also uh, important, is I've, I've tried to look at the, 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 and this is relevant to my father, the violence that existed in his life and yes. um, his own father was a shockingly violent man mm. towards he and his brother and his mother. Mm. And and my father obviously inherited some of that. My father was never physically violent, but he was very verbally, very hostile. And he was um, you know, pretty, <coughs> pretty bad drunk. Um, but the violence that he inherited and all that he grew up with, and his father had been in the First World War, and my father was in the Second World War. And I, I, I sort of make the point that People of my generation, we know about the Second World War and we know a bit about what it did to our fathers, even if they wouldn't talk about it. My father never did. But we've been able to read about it and we've seen all the movies and all that stuff. But we didn't really know much about the First World War and you know, an even more brutal war in, in many ways. And my grandfather was, was you know, in the fields of France and, and had a pretty shocking time. And I just and we, we, when he died, he died quite young in the 30s, and when he died, his wife and his two sons, my father and his brother, they bought him a hole in the ground at West Terrace Cemetery in Adelaide, and that was it. No, no headstone, no cross, no name, nothing. And he lay in that unmarked grave for something like 75 years before my brothers and I decided to reclaim him. Mm. 
And so, you know, what, what, what we as a family have tried to do, my brothers and I, and my cousin, the, the, the daughter of my father's mm -hmm. brother, is we have tried to sort of uh, confront the violence that existed in our family and tried to expunge it. And we, and we did it, we were motivated by two things. Mm -hmm. One was I wrote a little bit in The Lost Mother about this mm -hmm. uh, grandfather in the un unmarked grave and how we just thought he could stay there and rot as far as we're concerned because he was so violent, what he'd done to his kids. But then I had received a letter from a woman who sort of in her 80s and she said she was the daughter of a, of a World War I veteran and she'd been to the fields of France and she'd seen all the unmarked graves and she'd wept over these graves and she said, look, you know, the, the terrible things were done to these men and, um, you know, we don't have to forgive them, she said, but you, can, you should reclaim him, you should mm. at least own him and you should bring him back into your family. And shortly after I got that letter and showed it to my brothers and it really got us thinking... Shortly after that, Rosie Batty, um, you know, spoke to the country about what had happened to, to her son, and she said that you know Australians have to confront the violence in our families, and so this is what we did, mm -hmm. and and you know our violence, our story isn't nearly as bad as many stories, but it's still one little family trying to um, trying to deal with that, and I, I hope that we have expunged the violence now from mm -hmm. our family. And, and I think what was so significant for me reading about that was that this is an illustration of all the conundrums we face. We have powerful values that can drive us as human beings, but we must always balance those somehow with compassion, with mm. some kind of understanding, mm. with a, a reconciliation that doesn't undermine our values but has to coexist mm. with So them. in the case of the grandfather, we, mm. we reclaimed him. We've given him a headstone. Yeah. Uh, we've put his uh, name on it and his dates. We didn't put his wife's or son's names on because they chose not to. We thought we couldn't do that. So we just put um, his war years of war service um, and um, remembered by his grandchildren and listed our names. And we had a lot of discussion around the grave when we did this uh, with my brothers and their children. And so we had this discussion and, and we basically had a lot of arguments about what this meant and whether we, you know, did we forgive him? And, um, and I think, no, we don't forgive him for what he mm. did, but we acknowledge him and we've claimed him. Mm. And mm. I'm still not quite sure what the <laughs> distinction is and what it means, but he is, uh, he is now part of our family. He's, that headstone's there. We can go and see him and, um, you know, we, we now say he belongs to us even though we can never accept what he did. And then the terrible thing is, which I kind of finished mm -hmm. that chapter, is by saying that after we had that ceremony, this was in October 2014 that we did this, so just a few years ago, um, just looking around this windswept cemetery in Adelaide, where the, it's in the Catholic section of this cemetery, just noticing how many other unmarked graves there were. Mm. Yes, and wondering what stories lay behind those. Mm. We've got time for mm. about 10 minutes worth of questions and I feel sure you'll have them. So put your hand up and we've got a microphone on either side. Um, have we got a question from the floor? Um, we'll start down the front here with you. Yep, with you. <laughs> so just hang on a second till I get the, the microphone to you. Hello, and thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for the book. Um, the midterm elections yesterday, I was hoping would be a repudiation against Trump, and mm -hmm. that's not how I'm feeling today. Um, should be. <laughs> we, we, this is why I'm asking, because while we did certainly have a fantastic turnout of women, it just wasn't quite the blue wave, I guess, mm. that we were looking for, and I just wanted your 
contextual. Well, um, I probably shouldn't spend too much time on this because I know people want to talk about the book, and I'm writing a piece for the Herald on Saturday, which Perfect. I'll try. <laughs> I'll try and in 850 words say what I can. But let me just make two points. The Democrats had one job to do, and that was to get the House, and they did. And that is first for the first time, Donald Trump is going to be checked and held accountable. The, the Democrats will control all those committees. They have the power to subpoena. They have the power of impeachment. They can make life very difficult for him. So I think that's an extremely good result. And um, you know, the Senate's not over. They, they haven't won the Senate, but they may not have lost as many seats as we first thought yesterday. But the big news, I think, out of yesterday is that the Democrats uh, won statewide both governors, uh, governorships and Senate races in Michigan Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, three states that Trump won in 2016. Now, if those votes hold, he cannot win in 2020. The blue wall is back. <laughs> so this is a very good result. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, would you think that um, uh, a Catholic convent in education has been a catalyst rather than a deterrence for a lot of <laughs> successful women? No. <laughs> Despite it, I'd say, in my case, anyway. And Peter, I have to say, you are in the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, have we got for, some... For, for um, getting me out of trouble once. Pop your hands up, yeah, <laughs> As up, the, up the a lawyer. Back. I have to say, just while the microphone's going up there, I'm the product of a Catholic education <laughs> too, albeit a little bit later, and I thought it was terrific. The nuns were trailblazers. Yeah. But maybe it Not depends mine. where you were. No, who you got, what variety you got. It was a bit earlier too, so... Yeah. Go ahead. And thank you for the book. Um, I guess I just wanted to ask you where the courage comes from to write so honestly. You always have written very honestly about your own life and very honestly about experiences in your life that perhaps others wouldn't share. So is that something that you feel was innate within you or have you had to work to grow that courage? Um, well, it's a good question. I don't really know. I just do it. And, I mean, I often cop a lot of... I know. I mean, I, I got an, my, my previous book about my family, uh, Ducks on the Pond, caused major, major problems in my family. So, um, you know, my mother was very, very upset about that. Uh, I just feel that if I'm going to um, tell the story, I have to tell it honestly, and as honestly as I can. And uh, that's just the way I feel about it, so I do it. I mean, I guess it's like anything else, the more you do it, the more you do it. Mm. And I, I think the value of, we discussed earlier, um, choosing to write about your terminations, and I'm, I'm always struck the years by the description of termination as being both more and less weighty than people expect yeah, it to why be. why should it be a secret? Why should it yeah. be shameful? I mean, it's, mm. just, it's extremely common, and everyone, exactly. well, most women have, you know. Um, and, and we should, you know, there's been mm. a... One thing I really like about sort of young feminists today don't have that same reticence. I mean, maybe yeah. those of us who grew up in the era when it was illegal mm. and, you know, criminal and so mm. on, you know, mm. you could go to jail mm. if, you, if you didn't get killed by the, the termination. Well, maybe we, we inherited mm. certain reticence. But, I mean, there's now, you know, Clementine Ford and people like that, they write yeah. very openly about their abortions and they encourage others to do the same. There's a hashtag that Lindy West created, shout out your abortion. And it's something that, you know, why should it be a secret? Why should we be ashamed of it? It's a medical decision um, that, that you, you make and you take the consequences for and mm. nobody else's business, mm, really. Except, yes. you know, by telling other people you 
um, help make it easier for them. Mm, and essentially related to your sovereignty over your own body, whatever yeah. choices you make. Mm. Um, okay, some more questions. Have we got someone else up the back? Uh, yeah, I think just there. Thanks, Anne. I'd be really interested in your take on Germaine Greer's recent writings about consent or lack mm. thereof. Very controversial. I haven't read it. I'm really sorry. I mean, I know I should have, but I, read, you know, I was in America. I'm going to get this bloody book when I get here, and I've been so busy with mine, I haven't actually read hers. So I will get round to it, but I haven't done it yet. So I'm sorry, I can't really comment. Okay, and I think we've got another question here. Yep, and then we'll go up the back. Thank you for all that you've done for Australian women. Um, there's a lot of discussion around achieving 50-50 or 40% or 30% of boards and so on. How hopeful are you that this actually might be achieved sometime soon, um, let alone targets of 100%? But on boards? Well, well, on boards or in councils, parliaments, whatever. Mm. Well, I think they're a bit different. Um, I, mean, I think, um, can I talk about parliaments? That's, um, I think, more my, my, my area than boards. But I think, um, I mean, the election yesterday in the United States, you know, the, the, the wave of women, the year of the women, that all these women elected, and, you know, lots and lots of great women were elected. Um, the US Congress is still going to have, you know, considerably fewer women than the Australian Parliament, considerably fewer. And we're not that great, but, you know, but we're a lot better than they are, even after all this effort. So, and the reason we are better than, 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 than that is all because of what Labor did 20-odd you know, years ago in introducing quotas, something which the conservative side of politics just you know, can't bring themselves to, to even contemplate. Um, the, the only way in which you get more women into these positions is by deciding it's going to happen and, and finding mechanisms to make it happen. And they can be targets, they can be quotas, they can be you know, legislation, they can be whatever, but it's not going to happen by accident as the experience of the Liberal Party in this country federally has shown. Mm. It hasn't happened and in fact it's the reverse has happened because uh, some of the women who've already been elected have now lost their seats or have resigned or you know, weren't pre-selected pre again. And so the numbers of women in the House of Representatives on the Conservative side will actually go down after the next election, whereas Labor is probably going to hit 50%. Mm. So, you know, the same principle applies to boards, but obviously it's a kind of a different mechanism involved there. But if we want to have more women in represent... If women are going to represent... Be, be truly represented in the decision-making bodies of our country, as they should be, um, it's not going to happen by accident. Mm. We have to make it happen. Mm. And I think with that and argument... And we can. There's, mm. there's no reason why we can't. We just well, have to want to. I'd, I'd love to think about this argument on merit, inferring that every bloke who's in Parliament is a shining example of <laughs> rectitude, probity and sheer outstanding talent. Barnaby but, Joyce. Barnaby <laughs> Joyce, yeah. <laughs> Final question, I think, up the back. Thank you very much indeed for your presentation. Um, I came back in, from North America with a copy of the McGraw-Hill's Guide for Authors, Editors and Publishers and sent it to the AGPS and said the style manual should be changed. And it's my understanding that you then wrote the, the, the section on inclusive language, which I think makes a great deal of difference to the way we view 
the different genders and, and, and so on. So I'm just wondering what your views are now to the extent to which that had an effect on, there was an enormous controversy afterwards, on the way that women have been treated in Australia. On the star menu, star menu. Yes. Mm. Well, you've got a good memory. <laughs> uh, um, I'd, better than mine. Uh, all I remember is that, that uh, when I was in the Office of Status of Women, I used to get you know, invited to be on lots of different things because um, it was all very um, politically the go back then. Um, and I was on the, the committee that rewrote the Commonwealth Style Manual uh, to make it um, non-sexist and non... Uh, we didn't use the word gender back then, but we, we to make it... Um, all legislation back then used the male pronoun. I mean, so one of the things we, we addressed was the use of pronouns back when there were just two. Um, um, <laughs> and I hope it had an effect, but I, 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 it's not something I really studied, so I can't say. But I, mean, I, I think it was a good thing that it was done, and it certainly was a great statement of, of intent on the part of government and, the, and the, that part of the bureaucracy that they wanted the language of government to, to more fairly reflect the, 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 the full population. Mm. I think we're finished. And so okay. okay. many thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and then just uh, having talked about 50-50, I'm thinking that the next time you visit us to speak at the library, I'm really hoping that the audience is a 50-50 audience <laughs> because I don't think I can quite believe that the composition of our audience is just because women are better organised and hit the book button <laughs> faster than others. So, um, because, uh, in fact, of course, your, your life, your achievements um, and what you've written about are actually lessons for the men and women of Australia and it would be nice to have that heard too. Now, copies of Unfettered and Alive are available up in the library's bookshop with a 10% discount, and mm -hmm. Anne has very kindly agreed to sign copies of these, so um, we'll bring her a drink at the same time so that mm. she's not dry. Um, but I'd like to thank you all for coming here uh, this evening and ask you just to join me again in thanking Dan, uh, Dr. Dran, uh, Anne Summers and Genevieve Jacobs and invite you to all come up for some refreshments in our foyer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, Thank you. That was great. My pleasure. Really no, my pleasure. I really, thoroughly really, really enjoyed it. Really